0: Chapter eleven of the Adventures of a Grain of Dust by Hallam Hawkesworth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. November All cheerin' plenty with her flowin' horn, that yellow autumn wreathed with noddin' corn, Burns brigs of Ire There's silence in the harvest field, and blackness in the mountain glen, and clouds that will not pass away from the hilltops for many a day, and stillness round the homes of men. MARY Howitt, WINTER. THE AUTUMN STORES AND THE LONG WINTER NIGHT When the caveman was still living from hand to mouth, before he had even got as far as his first crooked stick for a plough, and when Mrs. Cave couldn't have canned a bean or a berry to save her life, even if she had had the cans, a certain little farmer already knew how to get root crops in the fall and clean them and cut them and put them away in his little barn under the ground for winter use several of these four-handed folk we have already met the beaver and the chipmunk among others but since we are now at the end of the harvest year i thought we might spend this evening the last but one i am sorry to say that we shall be together in a little chat about these thrifty brothers of the wild and how some of them are going to spend the long winter that begins in the autumn and lasts until spring one little granaries under the ground i was going to begin by saying that one of the most four-handed of them has six feet But as that would be almost as bad as a pun, I decided not to. You would have known, of course, that by people with six feet I meant the insects. ANTS THAT THRESH AND STORE Among the six-legged farmers, you may be sure, there have always been many who took thought for the morrow, the ants, for example. One can believe almost anything of ants. If that sluggard had gone to the ant, as wise King Solomon told him to, and learned all their ways... He would have found, among other things, how one species harvests the seeds of the plant known as the shepherd's purse by twisting off the pods with its hind legs. These members of the ant family store grains of oat, nettle, and other plants. They pick up all the seeds they can find that the autumn winds have already threshed for them, but they're not the least like that lazy man who wouldn't have the corn that was offered by kind neighbors to keep him from starving because it wasn't shelled. If they don't find enough seeds on the ground when it comes time to think about the winter stores, they climb up and gather in the seeds themselves on the shepherd's purse for example the ant climbs up selects a well-filled pod which is not sufficiently dry to have had its seeds threshed out by the winds takes the pod in its little jaws and then watch him turns round and round on his hind legs until he twists it off then with it he carefully moves down the stem like a baggage man carrying a big trunk from the third apartment Only the baggage man carries the trunk in front of him or on his shoulders, while the ant backs his way down. Sometimes two ants work together, one twisting, the other cutting away the fibers with its teeth. Sometimes they drop the pods to companions waiting below, and these other helpers never run off with it, but carry it to the common granary, for ants always play fair. And they have granaries. these ant farmers, hundreds of them, made just for that, each about the size of father's watch. "'Now here's a thing. You stow away a lot of seeds in a little hill where, of course, there's moisture, and what's going to happen? These seeds are going to sprout and grow and spoil, and this, of course, destroys their value as food. Then what are you going to do?' "'Of course, a human farmer would put his grains in a dry granary where they couldn't sprout. But you see, the ants haven't any granary of that sort, nothing but those little holes in the moist ground. Just what they do with these seeds has not been discovered.' They do something that keeps them from either spoiling or sprouting, but when they get ready for these seeds to grow, they let them grow, not so that they raise a crop, but for the same reason that the Chinaman lets the barley sprout that he uses in making chop suey, so that it will be nice and soft to eat. This growing digests the starch and the seeds into sugar. When the sprouts have grown as far as the ants want them to, they gnaw the stalk a little, and cut off the roots with their mandibles. When this sugar-making has gone on long enough, the ants bring all the plants out into the sun and let them lie there until they are nice and dry. Then they put them in their barns, and as long as winter lasts, they live on this sweet flower, grinding it in their mouth mills as they go along. Why, it's like living on cookies, almost. Only the ants have been used to this steady diet of sweets for ages, and it doesn't hurt their little stomachs as it would ours. This particular kind of a farming ant is called the Atabara, but there's another kind more wonderful still if we want to call on them by their scientific names these remarkable little creatures i'm going to tell you about now will have to go to texas and ask if the Pogano barbitus barbatus family are at home oh to be sure says the gentleman who first introduced them to scientific society reverend h s mccook just come with me so he takes us over into texas and shows us the ants at work They destroy every plant on their little farms except that known as ant rice. Compared to the size of the ants themselves, these grain fields are giant forests far bigger than the sequoia forests of California. The ants watch for rain at harvest time as anxiously as a farmer, and on the first sunny day they do their cutting and hurry the grain into the barn. Then, on later sunny days, they bring it out to dry before finally storing it away. Well, you say, is there anything left that these farmers don't do? I can't think of anything except the planting. One observer says that they do actually plant the seeds, and Dr. McCook says he wouldn't be surprised if they did, but he never saw them do it. In tropical America, there is a species of ant that raises mushrooms, at least a kind of fungus that passes for mushrooms with the ants. They don't exactly set the mushrooms out, but they save time by planting both the mushrooms and the leaves that make them as one and the same job. This is how they do it they climb the trees cut circular pieces of leaf with their scissor-like jaws and carry them back to low wide mounds in the neighbourhood of which they allow nothing to grow the purpose being as it is supposed to ventilate the galleries of their homes by keeping a clear space about the mound how the ants raise mushrooms the leaves are used as a fertilizer on which grow a small species of mushrooms the leaves are first left out to be dampened by the rain and are carried into the ants' cellars before they are quite dry. In very dry weather, the ants work only during the cool of the day and at night. Occasionally, inexperienced ants bring in grass or unsuitable leaves, but these are carried out and thrown away by older members of the family. But you see how valuable all these leaves are to the soil. Mr. Hamster's Threshing Harvester Of course, we always expect the ants to do extraordinary things, but one of those four-legged farmers I mentioned in the beginning of the chapter anticipated the principle of the very latest type of threshing machine. It's a fact. This remarkable little animal threshing machine is called the hamster. He is found in Europe, east of the Rhine, and in certain portions of Asia. He does both his cutting and threshing in his field, something the Gauls did in the days of the Romans in a crude way, but which men of our day have only got to doing in recent years. He pulls down the wheat ear, Cuts it off between his teeth and then threshes it by drawing the heads through his mouth. The grain falls right into sacks as fast as it is threshed, just as it does in those huge combined reapers and threshers that you see on our big wheat farms. Mr. Hamster's sacks are his cheek pouches, one on each side. When these are filled, this little threshing machine turns itself into an auto, a commercial truck, and off it goes with its load of wheat to the little barn hidden in the ground. These cheek pouches, by the way, reach from the hamster's cheek clear back to his shoulders and both of these pouches will together hold something like a thousand grains of wheat he empties them by holding his paws tight against each side of his face and then pushing forward rather a clever unloading device too don't you think so just as good for mr hamster's purposes as the endless chain system at the buffalo grain elevator that mr kipling admired so much and in the mere matter of the amount of grain handled the work of the hamster is not to be laughed at the peasant farmers are very glad to find a hamster granary which of course they promptly take possession of by due process of law the good old rule the simple plan that they shall take who have the power and they shall hold who can one of mr hamster's neighbors the field rat of hungary and asia stores his grain right in the house the place where he lives with his family mr hamster however has his barn separate from his house Sometimes he has one, sometimes two, and the older members of the community may have four or five. 2. Mr. Vole and his Root Cellar The farmer I mentioned at the beginning of this chapter, who is so thrifty about his root crops and so neat, belongs to the Vole family. He lives away over in Siberia, and his full name is Aravicola Economus. In gathering his crop of roots, he first digs a little trench around them and lays them bare. Then he cleans them off nicely so as not to fill his storehouse with dirt, cuts them up in sizes convenient for carrying, and then hauls them home and piles them in little cellars made specially for them. He only takes one piece at a time, walking along backward and pulling it after him with his teeth. He travels long distances in this fashion, going around tufts of grass, stones, and logs that lie in the way. When he gets home, he backs in the front door and into the living room, and then into the barns which are at the back of the living room. There are several of these, and they are at the end of a long, crooked passage. Some of the vole family make a specialty of wheat. One species of these wheat harvesters used to be common in Greece. He made such a nuisance of himself, from the Greek farmer's standpoint, that the Greeks had a special god to get after him, Apollo Myoctonus, Apollo, destroyer of mice. For the vole is just a kind of field mouse. Strictly speaking, I presume this was the same Apollo who carried the sun about in his chariot, and destroyer of mice was one of his many nicknames the runs of these wheat harvesting voles are eight to twelve inches below the ground and are connected with the surface by vertical holes the end of the run is enlarged into a big room for the nest and there are special rooms leading from the main runway that are used for the storing of the grain these voles do their harvesting in the evening standing on their hind legs and holding to the stalk with their little paws as a beaver clasps a tree they cut off the wheat head with their teeth they work very fast how did these farmers learn to store neither the voles nor any other of these interesting farmers and warehouse men used to get much credit for what they did the fact that they helped themselves to some of the good things of earth annoyed man of course and then when it came to the matter of intelligence conceited mr man said oh that's just instinct but nowadays when scientists have begun to study to find out what instinct really is It is thought that man's brother animals, although they are born with more knowledge of how to do things, with more of what we call instinct, have also learned by experience just as man did. It is argued that the storing habit was forced on animals, wherever the climate cut off the food supply for a time, either because it was too cold or too hot. The idea of putting something by for a rainy day appealed particularly to the burrowers, because they are a timid lot, not being able to defend themselves very well against their enemies they were obliged to pack up what they could and hurry to some hidden eating place that is where the cheek pouches which many of them have come in handy they are also very industrious and as the seeds and nuts on which they lived began to ripen they just couldn't resist the impulse to gather and gather and gather more than they could possibly eat at the time so as a result of this habit food piled up in their underground homes then as they were kept indoors by cold weather or by their enemies they took to eating more and more from the pantry shelf and thus the members of the family that were the busiest and therefore had the most to eat would naturally survive and leave children of similar disposition while the less thrifty would die off three the long winter sleep some of these forehanded people instead of putting their winter supply of food in the ground put it in their bones that is to say Before turning in for the winter, they get as fat as can be, and live on this fat until spring. A great advantage of this system of storage is that it is particularly pleasant work. You eat and eat and enjoy your meals, that's all. Another advantage is that you can't be robbed of your store as easily as the hamster, for example, frequently is. You carry it right with you wherever you go. There are a lot of curious things about this hibernation. Not only will warmth arouse the sleepers, but also extreme cold and after the extreme cold may come another sleep from which the sleepers never awaken. In other words, too much cold kills them. So the object of burying oneself as the groundhog does, or under the snow as rabbits do, or in the hollow caves and trees as Br'er Bear does, is to keep from getting too cold. Sometimes two or more bunk together, as little pigs do on cold March days. The body of each helps to keep his bedfellows warm. It's the cold that makes one drowsy. It is the cold itself that seems to make hibernating animals feel sleepy, just as it does human beings. At a moderate temperature, say 45 or 50 degrees, dormice and hedgehogs will wake up, eat something, and then go to sleep again. The dormouse usually wakes in every 24 hours, while the hedgehog's winter naps are two or three days long. Hunger seems to be the cause of their waking, just as it is with babies the little dormouse as the air grows colder gradually dozes off and his breathing is very deep and slow as the temperature rises he begins to take shorter and more rapid breaths and gradually wakes up then if he is in his own little home under the ground he feeds on the nuts and other foods that he stored in autumn and drops off again he sleeps from five to seven months depending on the weather moles and shrews so far as observation goes don't hibernate the moles simply dig deeper and there they find worms and insects that are buried away from the reach of frost the shrews hunt spiders and hundred-legged worms and larvae in holes and crannies of the soil or beneath leaves of ground plants and old logs a queer thing is that the hedgehog which belongs to the same family as the shrew and the mole is dead to the world all winter like all complete hibernators he stops breathing entirely The reason for this difference between the hedgehog and the mole is that the mole doesn't need to go to sleep because he digs below the frost line. As for the shrews, they have little bodies and are very active and so get themselves food and keep warm, while the hedgehog is so much bigger and slower that when there is so little to eat and it is so cold, he would either freeze or starve to death if he went about looking for food. He finds it cheaper to turn in and sleep than to work. None of the tree squirrels seem to take any unusually long naps in the winter. We often see them around on pleasant days in the parks and in the woods. They run out, get a few nuts from their stores, and then back again to their nests. But the chipmunks and the gophers, who are closely related to the squirrels, stay from late autumn to spring in their burrows, where they have plenty of food stored away, and they sleep most of the time. In the home of four chipmunks was found a pint of wheat, a quart of nuts, a peck of acorns, and two quarts of buckwheat, besides a lot of corn and grass seed, all to feed four fat chipmunks so with such plentiful supplies it is not surprising that after their long winter sleep the chipmunks are as sleek as can be and as fat as butter while mr bear comes out in the spring lean and with his hair all mussed up and as hungry as well as hungry as a bear all the bear family except the polar bears retire to caves or some sheltered spot under a ledge of a rock or the roots of a big tree among the polar bears the rule seems to be that it's mamma bear only who goes to bed for the winter She is careful to put on enough fat, not only for herself, but also so that the babies that come along in the spring will have plenty of milk. She is buried by snow that drifts on her, and her breath melts a funnel up to the fresh air. 4. Mr. Groundhog and His Shadow The woodchuck, like the bear, is a meat packer. People talk about him more or less in February. His other name is Groundhog, and his shadow is quite as famous as he is. But is there anything in that old weather saw? well yes and no you see it's like this mr groundhog goes to bed very early in the fall long before the cold weather sets in and so he is up very early the next spring long before the snow is all gone and as it is with the other all-winter sleepers a little extra warmth may wake him up along toward morning you know we all begin to stir around in our beds and get half awake so in addition to the fact that it is nearly daybreak for him that is to say springtime Let there come along a bright, warm day in February, the second is as good as any other, and Mr. Groundhog is likely to come out of his hole. And if he does, of course, he will see his shadow, after which there is likely to be quite a lot of cold weather. How weather averages up. Not that his shadow makes any difference, but the point is that if you have much warm weather early in February, you are likely to have colder weather later and running on into March. It's just the law of averages, that's all. You see it running through the year, this averaging up of weather. It just sways back and forth like a pendulum. Take it in any storm of rain or snow. First the clear sky, then the clouds, then the downfall, and after that the clear sky again. Take any month as a whole, or a year as a whole, and it's the same way. You get about so much rain, so much sunshine, and so much heat and cold. The United States Weather Bureau went to work once and, from the records, classified the storms for the last thirty years and they found that about fifteen storms each year start over the region of the west gulf states twelve begin over the mountains of colorado forty cross the country from the north pacific by way of washington and oregon and so on just about so many from each region each year and records in old diaries going back a hundred years show that the longer the period you examine for weather facts the closer the average the weather for one ten-year period will be almost as much like any other ten-year period as the peas in a pea-shell are like each other. Coming back to the subject of February weather, we find in the diary of an old resident of Philadelphia in 1779, the winter was mild, and particularly the month of February, when trees were in bloom. He doesn't say anything about the groundhog, but there is this to be said of the sharper changes of February and March, that at this season the earth is getting more and more warmed up, and yet the cold winds from the north don't like to go, so there is a constant wrestling match and it is the wrestling of the winds one way and another that brings the changes of the weather. So, if the south winds get the best of it in early February, the north winds, with their cold weather, are likely to win later in the month and vice versa. Moreover, if you believe in the groundhog proverb, you are apt to notice the warm days, or cold days, as the case may be, for the next six weeks after February 2nd, and you won't notice so much the weather that doesn't fit your proverb. It's a way we all have, seeing the things that go to prove what we believe and overlooking the things that don't hide and seek in the library i don't care what it says in alice in wonderland dormice never drink tea although dormice have been at table with people ever since the days of the romans dormice are still eaten in some parts of europe and the romans used to keep them as part of their livestock the european dormouse is really a little squirrel varro's roman farm management of which you are apt to find a good translation in the public library, tells how the Romans put their dormice in clay jars specially made with paths contrived on the side and a hollow to hold their food. Crocodiles and other tropical animals take very long naps during the hottest weather. Hartwig's Harmonies of Nature tells about an officer who was asleep in a tent in the tropics when his bed moved under him, and he found it was because a crocodile in the earth beneath was just waking up imagine what the dried-up ponds and streams of the janus of south america must look like when the rainy season comes on after the dry spell with crocodiles asleep just under the surface everywhere dr hartwood's book tells but the most remarkable case of drying up that ever i heard of was that of the egyptian snail in the british museum that woodward tells about in his manual of the mollusca this snail was sent to england simply as a shell in eighteen forty six Never dreaming there was anybody at home, they glued him to a piece of cardboard, marked it Helix Desitorum, and there he stuck until March seventh, 1850, when somebody discovered a certain thing that indicated that there was somebody at home and that he was alive. They gave him a warm bath, and he opened his four eyes on the world. In his Animal and Vegetable Hedgehogs, Nature's Workshop, Grant Allen tells why the hedgehog works at night and sleeps in the daytime. How he fastens on his winter overcoat of leaves using his spines for pins, and how funny it makes him look. How Mother Nature manages to have breakfast ready for him in the spring just when he is ready for it. How hedgehogs use their spines when they want to get down from a high bank or precipice really quickly. How their eyes tell how smart they are, for a hedgehog is smart. You will also find interesting things about hibernation in Gould's Mother Nature's Children and Richard's Four Feet, Two Feet, and No Feet. In one of his essays on nature topics, Seven Year Sleepers, Grant Allen tells how the toad goes to bed in an earthenware pot, which he makes for himself, and how this habit may have helped start the story that live toads are found inside of stones. Ingersoll, in that delightful book I have already referred to several times, The Wit of the Wild, calls the pikas the haymakers of the snow peaks. In his article on these interesting little creatures, he tells why you may often be looking right at one and still not see it. Why the pikas gather bouquets, and why they always lay them out in the hot sun, why their harvest season only lasts about two weeks, and why although they usually go to bed at sunset, they work far into the night in harvest time. The Country Life Reader has a good story of a woodchuck called Tommy. Among other things, it tells about the variety of residences a woodchuck has, and why animals that work at night, as all woodchucks do, have an unusually keen sense of smell. Can you guess why? The reason is simple enough. Here's a clever bit of verse about the woodchuck by his other name that I came across in some newspaper. The festive groundhog wakes to-day, and with reluctant roll he waddles up his sinuous way and pops forth from his hole. He rubs his little blinking eyes so heavy from long sleep that he may read the tell-tale skies. Which is it, wake or sleep? Ingersoll's Nature's Calendar tells why Br'er Bear stays up all winter when there is plenty of food, but goes to bed if food is scarce, how he uses roots of a fallen tree to help when he is digging his winter house, how he makes his bed and what he uses for the purpose, how the winds help him put on his roof, and how he locks himself in so tight that he can't get out until spring, even if he wants to. End of chapter 11.